Hey everybody, welcome back to Exodus for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can check me out over on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. It's another Marvel Fanfare Friday here, where we take a look at titles generally throughout the Marvel Universe. We're going to kick things off with the one-shot that closed out the calendar year, 2021, Timeless, before taking a look over at Kazar, Lord of the Savage Land number 4, and closing things out on a general Phoenix discussion that mostly focuses on Phoenix Song Echo 2 and 3, but definitely takes a look at a larger context for both the Phoenix Force and its hosts. But kicking things off is Timeless. Now this issue is certainly a long time coming for me, especially that last page reveal, but we couldn't help but talk about so much of the fantastic art, unbelievable writing, and Kang's abs. We hope you guys enjoy this next segment as much as we enjoyed making it, and if you like what you hear, don't forget you might even like what you see, so give us a subscribe over on Twitter at X's for Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at Marvel's mutants, magic, and time-traveling monsters week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me hopping around the time stream with gems in my eyes at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Hey everybody, it's Nathan. You can find me hanging out with Kangulies in a really prehistoric area, and it's really hot. Look, oh my god! And you can find me online at Dazzler AOA on Twitter and Instagram. That's Dazzler, like in the age of Apocalypse. Hello, it's me, Steve, and you can find me on Twitter at Howdy Duda. That's H O W D Y D U D A. And yeah, it's me. Hello. And I'm TK. You can find me trying to get as ripped as Kang in my home gym or on Twitter and Instagram at X Nate X Gray X. And I'm Jonah, and you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at PeakJonah. That's P-E-A-K. And we hope you survive this experience, unlike that mammoth. Okay, which of course means we're here to talk about Timeless. Timeless, the one shot that sort of closed out the Marvel calendar year, written by series favorite Jed McKay, with artists Kev Walker, Greg Land, and Jay Liston, Mark Bagley, and Andrew Hennessy. Color artist throughout this whole motherfucker was Marte Gracia, with lettering by the amazing VCs Ariana Mar, or Ariana Mare, or however we're pronouncing it today. With cover art by Kale Gu, with variant covers by so many people that if you tried to take a shot for every name, I said, great, now you have alcohol poisoning. The number of incredible covers on this behemoth are amazing. And so before anything else, I need to say that this is like a glory moment for me. Like the scorpions are playing, it's winds of change. It's a really good moment for me. This show was formed with a three-pronged intention. It was always going to cover the X-Men, Captain Britain, and a certain Miracle Man. And so this issue for me represents a really exciting moment as anybody who's been listening for a long time knows we've covered every page of Miracle Man following the 1980s revival. And so this just feels like my boy Mickey coming home, and I am very excited to be here talking about this with these people. So without further ado, I want to start with, we have so many hot Kangs now, I don't know what to do with myself, because we've got hot live action Kang, which slurp, and we have hot TK lookalike Kang, which slurp, and I want to know, what do you, how do you guys Kang? How, how Are you guys Kang? 
Kangists or are you guys a little bit more about Rue or are you guys all about Krang from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? I gotta know. Kang me. I mean, my faves is always going to be Iron Lad. That's my Kang. This first page Kang is who I aspire to be, but the one I want to hang out with is good boy Kang that's trying to save himself from becoming Kang, but is really failing. Diet Kang Cola. Exactly. You know, I, I don't need all that sugar. The Kang in this one shot is uh, exactly the Kang that is my favorite Kang, and it's pretty identifiably like Kurt B6 Kang from Avengers Forever and the Kang Dynasty. I love it. I love seeing the return of this this voice and this personality for Kang. It's been a really long time since I've seen anything really even close to it. And also, I gotta say, all, all three of the pencilers on this just really, just really knocked it out of the park with Kang, both in the design of the outfit, making it look good despite being completely silly as always, and also just like the facial descriptions are amazing. And like, it is straight up that fucking Hellboy glove that he fucking rocks. <laughs> but he makes it fashion. Yeah, well, that and like the thigh-high boots sometimes look completely ridiculous here when he's shirtless on that main page. I mean, like we've already talked about how incredibly hot Kang is in this, but especially on that first page, like he's he's walking up in those thigh-high boots with the belt on and the pants, and he does not look in any way. Serving. Yeah, those thigh-high boots, like, holy shit. This version of Kang is so, like, exactly the Kang that I got in late 80s Avengers, but, like, modernized and a little less campy, but still got a lot of that camp factor. So I'm like, holy shit, give me some campy Kang, but also make him a little bit more, like, real and less, like, ha, 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 I'm going to stroke cat while I, like, destroy universes. And this is that Kang right there. Jonah, I have to know, does your Kang go to a summer camp to learn how to stroke cats? Where do you Kang? I don't really Kang. Kang is just a character that just happens to be there for me most of the time. The Kang I tend to like the most, I have to agree with TK, is Iron Lad. Like, the Avengers seem to fight him, and he's like, well, you didn't really foil me. I'm just going to go to a different time period. (laughs) Kang is pretty thrilled that if you know one thing about Kang, it's that he doesn't lose he just leaves it's what it is he doesn't really just lose he just leaves and then rewrites history because history is just written by the winners and if he always wins or if he technically never loses he could just write history how he wants he's fine he has a he has a nice color scheme though i like the green the green and purple and the blue face i think this is a reasonable critique of kang and one of the things i love jonah is that you've already brought up the phrase history is written by the victors And I think what's really funny is that in this case, history is actually being written by a doctor dude, and he actually is technically the winner of a fight, but that's another part of the story uh, in a hot minute. How did you guys feel about Anatoly Petrov? He was, you know, in a a world where so many of us are like, can somebody please explain to me what the ex-office has against everyone Russian? It was really nice to have a character that, number one, you know, I am not ever going to say that an artist, you know, it's not like artists don't have their own voice, but like the familiarity of the way the Bacalo style has dominated Marvel events for like 35 years that you can see his influence on Kev Walker. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's really beautiful to see in these narration pieces because it drives home this identity of the Marvel Universe. And I felt Anatoly as an everyman in the style 
of the Marvel Every Event. This really hit for me on emotional levels. Yeah, I really, uh, I'm a huge fan of Kev Walker. Love seeing him show up. And you're absolutely right. I felt more of a Pachalo influence in this than I have in a while. It's just that really sick Kang armor. I don't know, the helmet really does it for me on this one. I love the concept of Anatoly as a character. You know, I think things like this are what longtime readers start to crave, which is like, okay, I've seen now every combination of superhero battle. I've seen every event that they can do. Moments where, for instance, we get a lens into a part of the Marvel Universe through somebody who is a scholar. I mean, you know, it's not like crazy scholarly writing, but the idea that in this world at this point, of course you would have people with PhDs that are studying superheroes, supervillains, and all that. And the idea that we follow one through, you know, firsthand research is a genius idea. I give a shout out to my husband who, when he finished this issue, just said, the writer just feels very gay for Kang, which I completely agree (laughs) with in the best possible way. Kang always feels super gay to me. Like, I literally read Kang in John John Delancey's voice when I'm reading Kang generally. Oh, yes. I mean, I love that. I'm really having trouble reconciling Kang's body with that, but I'm going to work on it on my spare time. It's like when you see J.K. Simmons got jacked and you're just like, what the fuck happened? He's Schillinger. That's not how this is supposed to go. Exactly. So I, for me, like I like the character Anatoly uh, Petrov, but the name was a little confusing because when I was like, I'm like going through and I'm like, is this a character I missed? And then I'm like, oh wait, there's a real world Anatoly who's an yeah. animator who like died in 2010. And I was like, is this supposed to be the Marvel version of that? And then I was like, it just brought a whole lot of questions. Like just using that same name, it does. I think it was seem- just a sweet reference okay. from the artists because he would be somebody that that they knew. Now, how did you guys in general feel about the color storytelling. It's something that this crew talks about a lot, whether it's our coverage of Defenders, Moon Knight, or any number of the X-Books where color is such a significant binding element. I really did appreciate the way that we go from this like sunsetty beginning primitive scene where everybody's got like this gold fire glinting off of their shoulders and stuff like that to the the incredible reds and blues and jagged motion of that whole fight scene kang just looks like a fucking killer and yeah like the future scenes are really bright and colorful and remind me a lot of like avengers forever and that stuff i i think the thing that really stood out to me was when they go to that dead timeline though and everything for me changed to like this kind of colors that i i normally don't like it's like this really done sort of like gray washed out background colors and it's it's usually a thing that i like really dislike in color art um but for once i actually kind of enjoy it because it was clear that it was a it was a shift in like the light even of this dying timeline from where we've been outside of time and on earth and in the regular timeline we go to this entropic timeline and suddenly everything is a little dimmer everything is a little duller uh things seem a little bit more washed out and i thought that was a subtle touch i think it really helped using those different tones to help unify the the different artists that were used throughout the whole issue and i think without such a strong color artist in marte garcia like it may not have gelled together as well as it did because like it reads as a really good story and all of the different art styles work well for their different eras they're in and the different types of uh, what they want to present in each era page 28 of digital where they are going into the dead timeline and they're like i have come victor and like we get that really big huge panel of of doom who's richards right but like that right there that's like an amazingly beautifully colored like piece right there Holy yeah that shit. light shining in on him is really yeah, yeah. gorgeous marte gracia really understands how light can blind you coming off of something it's it's one of my favorite things about his work and 
one of my favorite things about Marte Gracia's work is for all of the val- for all of the vast amount of color that they're able to apply to this beautiful book and take on multiple styles to support each line artist in a way that best explores their ability. There are still some Marte Gracia standard color palette choices where like, you know, if you let anybody do a thing, you know, uh, if you let JR JR draw anything he wants, everybody's always going to have that boxy flying Superman look, you know what I mean? Yeah. If you say, you know, yeah, exactly. If you say, Marte Gracia, what do you want to do? Marte is going to come in and be like, I love purple and green. And I think that's best explored, not just through Kang, but through the splash page on page 15, which provides us with another one of those take a look at the future of the Marvel Universe situations. Now, I'm fascinated by so many of these portents. Number one, I cannot believe that we are seeing Doyle. Yes. That is some crazy shit seeing Doyle. In his little collared shirt. He's wearing a collared shirt. I love it. He is wearing a collared shirt. That's a good catch. Which which Twilight Sword do we think this is? Is this Surger's Twilight Sword or is this the one that was used to cleave a Racco? Like, what, what are we talking here? That damn sword reference that showed up every five issues in for Tim Lords. We have so many problems with having so many key phrases that we try to keep in company. I'm surprised it's not the Secret Sword, the Wars Sword. Over in DC, they probably have the Crisis Sword and the Infinite <laughs> Sword. You know, you've just got to keep your nomenclature going. Ooh, do the X-Men get Uncanny Swords? Okay, I desperately need Wolverine to bear the Uncanny Sword. through. Oh my god, what if Wolverine gets a different adjective sword each timeline? The Uncanny Sword, <laughs> the Astonishing <laughs> Sword, the Adjectiveless Sword. The adjectiveless sword is my favorite. The sword. (laughs) We have a new Iron Fist. Is that Mary Jane Watson Spider-Man versus Storm Black Panther? Like, Uh, it does appear to be that. That, That's the best guess. That is a that is a very good guess. I kind of think that the Moon and Orcus thing it has to be tied in directly to what's going on over in X Men right now. Yeah, and so I find myself really kind of overwhelmed by this two page spread and everything that it it does and doesn't mean for the Marvel Universe. Like I don't need to see book uh, Bucky shooting Captain. Okay, I don't need to see Bucky shooting Captain America. Like I'm I'm just not sure what I'm looking at. I assumed that this Moon was where Scott lives, but man. What if that's the moon of Mars? It doesn't say where the moon is. Yeah, yeah, I was that's thinking, what I was saying. Oh. Yeah, I, I definitely. Once I read that, went back, and when I was reading this, I thought, oh, that's not that's Phobos. Yeah, the moment yeah, you. That's what I was like. Down. I think this has to tie into six. Yeah. Ooh, and Jack of Hearts is going to come back. Uh, yeah, yeah I, that's a thing that like seven people really care about. <laughs> I love Jack of Hearts. Hey, those seven back. people are very yeah. happy. Jack of Hearts is one of those characters that I like. I ships in the night a lot, so like he comes up from time to time, and people real like feel real passionately about him one way or the other. And I feel like I just don't understand the character. So if people want him back, I'm here for it. They can have him one thousand percent. Got to read that Avengers run. It's amazing. Oh, he's, he's like, not a, people are so entitled to him. He's not a good character, but his design is incredible, and no, his no. angst at Scott Lang is borders on the sexual. Yes. <laughs> and then, of course, I'm going to bring up that my boyfriends appeared here. My sweet time boyfriends. My Deathlocks. Oh, yeah. Not, not oh. the Pythians. Oh. I love Deathlock. Why do they keep trying to make Ravencroft a thing, too? <laughs> like, seriously, uh, why? Because they love me, is why. <laughs> it's because the Arkham games are so They're trying bad. to sell a video game eventually. Exactly. Yep. It's because I love Ravencroft, and I love Frank Thierry, and whatever keeps putting Frank Thierry on miniseries and events is worth it. Honestly, I would play the shit out of a Ravencroft game. 
Same. I probably would, too. I would. I mean, and that's kind of what I'm hoping that Midnight Suns card game that's coming out is all about. Well, I think you're fucking dreaming, but it would be nice. (laughs) It would be nice. I want to give a shout out here to a person I don't normally give a shout out to. uh, Greg Land doing a really great job. I was shocked. Uh, Me too. (laughs) You know, people have really been trying to say that, like, he's really trying to grow his pencil. So I really appreciate people. Like, I I saw it too. I was really surprised. Yeah, that that scene where Kang is, like, talking to Petrov and he's like, oh, don't look so sour. I will do the killing. The way his face looks in there is, like, the most Kang face I can imagine. Like, a dude who's just licking his lips at the idea of battle. (laughs) The next major splash page has to be the slain celestials laying just like like they're napping almost they're just like hey what's up dead celestials hanging out over on page 25 and i really am i can't stop saying that i think judgment war knowing that judgment is supposed to be like an eternals thing i keep thinking that judgment war is going to wind up being the eternals and the x-men and the avengers versus the celestials and i think that that's like you know the judgment that we have coming that the celestials are coming to kill us and you know showing this reed richards this doom richards which you know i'm fine with every time that you put a a richards in a doom costume you know it's at least this one wasn't valeria so (laughs) i'm fine with it you know here's my question for you guys I, i gotta know because maybe i'm not doing it right but if i've managed to slay and drink the blood of the celestials which this sort of mirrors the end of Loki and the end of What If. And I have two Infinity Stones in my fucking face. How is this dude going to stab me in the back? Like, and like, why wouldn't I just rewind time the minute I started to get stabbed? I just feel like this Richards probably isn't dead. What do you guys think? I feel like he just got stabbed too good. Maybe the act of being impaled sort of reset his moral compass that maybe Reed Richards kind of has somewhere. He pretends he does. But like, maybe it reset that moral compass and he's like, oh, you know what? Maybe I fucked up. Maybe I should just let me die. I like, I should just let me die. I like it. I like it a lot. I like this Doom. I like any Richards that becomes a Doom. I like any Doom that becomes Richards. I think that they're just a wonderful little Janus coin. And I love the idea that Richards' whole thing is that he's just like, I had to be Doom because, like, you know, I need I need this to work. Like, when he realizes that everybody else is dead, he doesn't even stop for a second to grieve like a Richards would. He acts like a Doom would, saying like, well, no, I still must be right. There still must be some meaning to this. I can't have failed. I can't have been wrong. And I think that gets to the heart of, like, all three of these characters simultaneously. I love that read. That's great. It's very interesting the way they are constantly becoming each other and missing what the other one has. Yes. So desperately wants to be able to do science unfettered so that he can get to the answers. And ultimately that means being horrible and being a despot. And Doom constantly wants a family, uh, specifically Reed's family. (laughs) Um, family. And every time he gets a chance to like, have more power what he does is try and put together a family specifically reed's family and you know it's just one of those if you guys just like hung out for a while you could team up and have everything that you want see like a lot of my favorite fantastic four stories so like obviously like x-men versus fantastic four there's a lot of talk about the similarities between reed richards and doom and when doom plants that big journal like he even has to question reed even has to question if he did it 
himself if he accidentally caused the uh, accident that made the Fantastic Four. And then in the 90s, like another big era for me was, you know, boop window suit, Scott Lang, helmet thing, and hot human torch on the team. And like Reed was dead, but when he came back, he came back sort of like his Reed Doom. So like I always, I do love seeing them always point out similarities between the two because they, they are both very similar. I, I think the means with which they go about their goals are a little bit different and that's what really set the two characters apart in the end but like this idea that reed eventually realizes he has to become doomed just to accomplish what he needs to is his mm, chef's kiss i thought this was very interesting to see a where this timeline ended b to see how it ended and c to see who was trying to bring it back together because i like that kang's first thought was oh it's doom it's always doom doom always has some form of plan and literally does not care about anybody else but doom and will do whatever it takes to save doom and then we find out but no it's not doom it's reed richards with some crystals in his eyes like some fucking coralline shit and then he's pretending to be doom which i I don't know it's kind of weird that he's wearing like his ex-lover's clothes and like (laughs) pretending to be doom because nobody else is there that's a little weird like reed do you just dress up as doom when nobody else is at the fantastic four thing does sue know about it well uh, sue obviously likes it it. and this is he only does it when sue is off at atlantis with namor i think if you set yourself up with this being that has amassed so much amount of power uh it is hard to find a conceivable way of how their defeat is possible let alone them just getting stabbed in the back you can and maybe argue that Kang is distracting so much of his power that he didn't see it, but I feel like that's a little bit of a stretch. This is one of those ones we have to chalk up just to the story wouldn't wrap up if they didn't do this, so the writer just kind of lets it happen. Shoot, can you really stab an elastic man and kill him? <laughs> no, that's my only thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, according to Darkhold Spider Man, yes. I just I just read Fantasy but he wasn't really dead. and Reed gets shot like twenty times, and it does not matter. <laughs> <laughs> right before this launch, we get shot with a machine gun. Man, Reed Richards is what a fuck. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I gotta say, there's one thing I really liked about this scene. Like, one thing that Kang really says that I was like, holy shit, like, is he like Doctor Who now? Where he's like, this is the very reason I like taking on time traveling companions. So I was like, holy shit, is Kang like the evil Doctor Who? Like, Ballsy. well, I mean, because I even went there too with the whole, you know, Richards making a good doom. I'm like, you would make a good doom, Lack. Like, I mean, it's. <laughs> It's very that place in my head. I very much see that too. There's a lot of really strong parallels in the way Doctor Who has very much influenced sci-fi in the last years. Also, shout out to the Palpatine reference with Reed running around on wires at the end of his time, like Palpatine in the uh, last. Oh God, he is. I don't even know how I didn't even notice that. I it was the the immediately the first thing I thought, and I really I would be so curious to know if anybody while this was being produced mentioned that because it, it just looked exactly like that to me. Really appreciated Kang's exultant happiness at the idea that Reed Richards is the tyrant he always thought he was. I know it's a little bit of him being like, see, you are my ancestor, but it's also a bit like, you're not as good as you thought, you fuck. And, you know, that is one of the things that I think all Richards is, is, is need to be reminded from time to time that they're not as unlike Dooms and Kangs as they'd like to believe. <laughs> True. Yep. Yeah. 
So I also just kind of want to make a quick shout out to Mark Bagley, who has not always been my favorite artist at Marvel over the years. I really feel like I almost couldn't recognize these pencils as his. They were like the best I can imagine his work in some time. And I really appreciated that about it. I felt that way about everybody but Kev Walker in this issue. (laughs) (laughs) These are sure a bunch of artists that I don't usually jive with, but are really good on this issue. And I feel like you even get like some of his like signature cartooniness, especially looking at the fight between Kang and Doom on page 35, those bottom that bottom three triptych of Doom Richards holding Kang by the neck. There's oh, wow. And that's a really great example of the wires. Great call there, TK. Uh, And I just really feel like there is something kind of magical in the expression of so much of what Bagley was able to do still kind of retaining what made ultimate spider-man a household name while continuing his own art forward i think it really works for him here i I do love how he was able to make doom doom read doom's face expressive even with those infinity gems in his eyes like the eyes look so expressive but i'm like oh wait they're infinity gems (laughs) so okay on the final page of this story after anatoly has helped save kang from doom and man what a kang thing to be like no no no, no, you didn't save me. I brought you as a tool. That's some like old white man management shit. <laughs> Finding a way that it was always his idea to save the day. Very tuxedo mask of him. And so we go home and or we go home. Anatoly goes home <laughs> and he can't get the Miracle Man logo out of his head. And this is one of those situations where I'm like, mm, this should not have been hyped publicly. This should not have made its way into the news articles by Marvel the next day. They should not have been ready with the omnibus press release, which because the omnibus isn't coming out till September anyway. So what's the fucking difference? So like, I maybe think as the Miracle Man guy who wanted this so bad, this had nothing to do with the issue, but I'm so excited. What did you guys think about the unnecessary introduction of my precious Mickey into the last page of this completely unrelated issue? The first thing I thought when I saw it was, hello, Doomsday Clock. Like, I feel like this was... yeah. Yeah, Mr. Manhattan up in this piece yeah like and it's obviously because of the character because of the idea that we got him like okay now we we can play there they want to do something that sparked that same sort of amazement at the introduction like all it's all just we're making we're gonna make stuff up for the next whatever year however long it takes to actually see him but the idea that like this crazy powerful character is waiting in the wings to like change everything up the first thing thing I thought of was Doomsday Clock. So far on my shelf of books, the thing I most regret ever having bought. Having Jed McKay present him to me is a lot better than Jeff Johns by any measure. Yeah, yep. I don't know who's going to be the Miracle Man writer. I personally can't see a way that Miracle Man can appear in the Marvel Universe and it mean anything just in the same way that Watchmen should never appear in the DC Universe. It doesn't make any fucking sense. It's just, it's not compatible and it shouldn't be. Interesting that it was so unimportant to this issue that the the only moment earlier in the issue that alludes to Miracle Man is the part where Anatoly Vetrov is like, who is that? I don't recognize that guy's face. And you don't see his face. And I literally forgot. I, it took me like two or three readings of this to be like, oh, he's talking about Miracle Man, I guess. I'm just learning that now. I thought he was talking about Immortus, but yeah, no. Nathan, how about you? What is your relationship with Miracle Man? I just sort of assume that most people kind of, I don't know, kind of just shrug him. So I know that, you know, you're such a, like a super hardcore Marvel 
guy, but because it's been held out of Marvel Unlimited and the rights have been so complicated to secure for so long, even someone like you, who's such a, you know, a thoroughly read Marvel guy, Nathan, you probably still kind of lack that intense relationship with Miracle Man. Yeah, the only real Miracle Man stuff I've ever even seen is like the little bits that have kind of been like, we're kind of like cameo inserted into Captain Britain. So like, I have no, I have absolutely no relationship with Miracle Man and I am excited to learn more. I'll probably buy that Omni just to learn more about the character and like kind of get into it. So like, I'm excited to learn more because I know a lot of people are really in love with that character, but I have no, I have no previous relationship with Miracle Man. Yeah, short of the two appearances in Captain Britain and the appearance in Marvel 1000, Captain Britain, whoa, Miracle Man really has been kept out of the Marvel vernacular despite access to the character now for something like six years. Now, Jonah, Miracle Man is something that when you came into this relationship, I was like, yeah, no, and just accept that we love this thing. And obviously, you know, one of the you know, earliest things on this show was Kevin and I covering Miracle Man in depth. We covered all of the family's finest issues, as well as the hardcover representations of the 1950s comics, plus the Alan Moore 85 and on run. So how does it feel for you finally seeing this thing come due after years of hyping it? It made me very excited for you because I knew once I saw it, you were probably freaking out and convulsing and having a very deep emotional moment. And I was like, oh, cool. This character that I've been force fed to read and it was like, cool. And I was much more excited that this is a character that I've been talked to about for years at this point who hasn't been seen, who hasn't been doing anything. And to see him come back and to hear Nico's theories has made me me very happy now on the last page of the book we actually have a standard marvel pinup advertisement which says time marches across the marvel universe the road forward marches through these upcoming storylines i don't know if anybody noticed but the word through is broken on the page even mm. on the digital copy so it looks kind of interesting but I can't help but notice that of the seven events they have listed on this page, three of them are already coming out. Yeah. Like, I don't know where timing and printing got a little bit off here, but Devil's Reign, Death of Doctor Strange, and Avengers Forever are already being produced. And it's not like Death of Doctor Strange is a little bit into its run. Death of Doctor Strange is most of the way into its run. Yeah, that's almost over. So it's really interesting that that's being labeled an upcoming storyline in the same breath as Devil's Reign, which is on its second issue, Avengers Forever, which is on its first issue, or something like Fantastic Four Reckoning War, which won't come in, which won't be coming out until March. So I find myself very curious about exactly how this was all originally meant to be published. A fair question. I am really interested to know what this Hulk Thor banner of war thing is. It's in such a state that we only get a black and white preview image. So I'm like, I don't think this one is almost done coming out yet. I really want it to be like a for real fight fight game. Like that would be kind of fucking amazing. <laughs> like, you have to have like Hulk do some like, like Horolkin. I don't know. <laughs> I do love how Kang is such a petty bitch that like, even when Anatoly saved him in the end and he decided not to kill him, he still took all of his notes for the Doom book and he's like, you're not going to fucking write that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What a pushy boy. <laughs> 
Hey everybody, welcome back. Nico here again. In this next segment, we talk a lot about the different themes running through Kazar as a title. Now this miniseries is one issue away from closing up, and I know we're definitely going to miss it here, so hopefully this is just the start of an amazing new era for the Savage Land, which certainly feels richer, fuller, and newer than ever. We hope you guys enjoy. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another amazing segment of Extra Podcast, where we talk about mutants, magic, and Marvel week after week. I'm Nathan. You can find me online at DazzlerAOA on Twitter and very rarely Instagram, but mainly Twitter. Yes, and hello, it's me, Steve, and you can find me on Twitter at HowdyDuda. That's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A. And I'm Raven, a.k.a. Dame Red Bento. You can find me over on Twitter and a bit of TikTok. And- We're here talking about Kazar, Lord of the Savage Land, written by Zach Thompson, penciled by Alvaro Lopez and Lalit Kumar Sharma. On Inks, we have a jam team of Alvaro Lopez, Bellardino Bravo, Mark Deering, and LeBeau Underwood. Matt Miller taking on the coloring duties, and Joe Caramagna finishing out the letters. First impressions going into this, how are we feeling about this series? now that we're almost wrapping it up it's it's been a really kind of interesting vintagey kind of feel which yeah i have i haven't seen in comics for quite some time so it was kind of nice to have a, a almost old school rewind back to like you know say the 50s and 60s ish style comic yeah are you talking about the art the lettering the story or all all of them because i i would agree with every one of those so like the lettering feels slightly more modern to me and not in a bad way at all but yeah definitely like the story and the artwork really harkens back to like older comics and it's kind of cool because my father uh read the old comics and that's kind of where i got my start when i was growing up yeah um something that i've been appreciating is that it harkens back to those like old colonialist jungle action type comics um but like with an emphasis on unraveling their imperialism and their greed (laughs) and their horrific nature the opening scenes have all been like short little horror vignettes of dreams of kazar as a boy but like this one really frightened me i think like you said it, it really harkens back to a lot of like if you ever you read any of those old tarzan picture books or comics like just the opening scene itself especially when kevin's talking to his father like or or revisiting memories of his father plundering the fucking savage land like it really harkens back to that imperialistic bullshit but like it also knowingly and self-awarely does it and it doesn't idolize it like those old books did so it's got that feel but it's got a lot more modern tone to it and it's a lot more aware of what it's doing and i was gonna say the the fucking art and the colors in this book are so fucking out of this world out of this world matt miller round of applause it's incredible i yeah i love the softness when they're walking in the daylight it just feels like there's like this golden hour light all the time i like the creepy dark purples and blues and greens of the nighttime scenes yeah some really really good stuff and we touched on it briefly but the lettering is just like astonishing like with the lettering like the the cool book style lettering in it too like very very good setting of tone and mood and it, it immediately brings my mind to a very particularly like old and british view of looking at a jungle which i think mm-hmm. is like mm-hmm. a really really spot on yep. yeah, yeah well and it, it sets the mood for the kind of colonial or imperial views that that they often you know espouse it feels very um tarzan yeah i mean how could yep. you not right i like that the series does not shy away from the comparison mm-hmm. yeah yes. no it, it's pretty damn cool in the way that it does that particularly like oh like it evokes so much nostalgic 
stuff, but it like it, mm-hmm. it really just doesn't like it doesn't bring in all the crap you expect with it. So I love yeah, it. Yeah, no. exactly. And, oh my god, the body horror. <sighs> and not not only the body horror, but like as you're saying, like the body horror connects to themes of like you know mass murder or uh, I, I should say meat is murder. There's such a strong undercurrent of like a vegetarian ethos uh, in all this, and I mean obviously that's that's just an ethos of like a respect for life and mm-hmm. animal sovereignty. But there's just that little bit at the beginning when uh, Kazar is scared of being eaten and his dad turns on him and just describes him as little meat, describing the, the blood in the neck, the blooming in the chest, the feeding the empty cave in your head, describing mm-hmm. Kazar's body in extremely like clinical and like butcher shop terms um, mm-hmm. rather than as a, a living being, the way that we generally do when we describe our livestock. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very powerful, very powerful stuff. <laughs> so moving on past that, we find that Kazar and Shanna survived the end of the last issue. We, we saw them sinking into like some kind of tar pit and Kazar was like dead. I have never encountered these people before. Uh, I have not read a lot of this, but I noticed that they say that they are descendants of the Atlanteans. That's really exciting. Hmm. <laughs> I should have done some yeah. Savage Land research probably before reading the series, but I've just enjoyed going into it cold. Do either of you have uh, experience with these Atlantean indigenous peoples of the Savage Land? How did you feel about the scene where we, we get another story of people who settled in Savage Land? Obviously, every human has settled somewhere on earth yeah. you know that's that's the nature of it um but this this view of the people as like distrustworthy or distrusting of Kazar so much like as well they should be <laughs> i mean yes. uh, it i i like that uh, i actually really love the fact that they look african and yet are descendants of atlantis because usually atlantis is such a uh, a whitewashed you know lost white civilization kind of thing so we but we're getting to see you know people who look african people of color and they aren't being shown in just you know the starving on the edge of just brink of just you know just malnourished and fl- like you're not getting what could have been a very stereotypical scene Instead, you have people who are in perfect harmony with the lands, who have, you know, advanced medicines, who are just, you know, one with nature, but still, you know, have their art, have their, you know, their culture, have beautiful buildings and architecture that honestly harken back to kind of um, universities in in Africa, I believe, which were uh, in Ethiopia. So, like, it harkens back to beautiful old African architecture, and I just, I'm I'm loving it. I I do love how they were able to bring this group of people in that I, I don't think we've really seen before, but it, it makes sense. And it, and it fucking makes sense for them to be distrustful of Kazar and Shauna, especially in light of recent events where they, you know, saved the day in Wormwood, but they also destroyed it too as well. So like them being the protector of the Savage Land overall doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be able to protect the individual area. So like they've they've got the needs of the the many to worry about and that these these people are worried about the needs of themselves which is amazing and like you said raven like the fact that they have this amazingly advanced medicine 
they've got they've got the ability to protect themselves in general all on their own and they don't need uh the basically i mean kazar and shana are, are strangers in a strange land right they don't need the mm-hmm. the white savior to come and save them they don't need that it's, mm-hmm. it's beautiful and it's, it's good to see that they don't have to survive they don't have to rely on the protectors of the savage land to survive not only survive but to thrive mm-hmm. yeah and uh so as i understand it zira here is a character who's appeared before have either of you read those previous series where zira is apparently matthew's caretaker as a child no i had not i was like no. oh, oh i might need to go back and and brush up on some of my history because i did not get to read those yeah reading her here made me very interested to see her other appearances i really want to draw attention to these this double page spread where we're introduced to zira and the the yugen in the city the yugen i just really love the layout here i think the between the really intricate layout that's going on and the way that the lettering of the word bubbles pulls your eye through them in a way that makes sense of what would be an otherwise almost incomprehensible panel order is really mm-hmm. clever and i thought it worked extremely well and i just, I just gotta say with zero so like if anybody's looking and i just did this for myself if anybody's looking to read her early appearances she first appears in kazar volume three back number one back in 97 so she's mm-hmm. been around for a little while at least i know we don't get a lot of savage land stories but um you know that that is where i'm gonna go to to start because she's such a fucking fascinating character that i need to know more and we find that there's some kind of portal into the cradle which seems to be like an underworld like a, essentially a techno-organic savage land nether mm-hmm. realm yeah. uh, which is super interesting to me to see this kind of like mystical component to something that is clearly so science fictional you know mm-hmm. i love the melding of the two of them here there 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 feels like a lot of ritual going on even as we're seeing like transhuman and cyber cyberborg i was about to say cyborg stuff <laughs> and then that weird dr manhattan lettering on the, the bubbles yeah I, I gotta say the face door is so fucking fascinating the idea that one must be digested into the cradle is at once horrifying and terrifying and like really fucking exciting like ah uh, like i really got to see how this is like all going to play out because this is like like you were saying like the perfect mesh between maybe some of the mysticism of the savage land and the just like the the futuristic sci-fi part of the tech that is brought in yeah i really want to know what keeps this all running like there seems to be a machine but there's also a green like I, it is just such a unique and fascinating place that Thompson has turned the Savage Land into. We get we get Matthew hanging out with the Domovoy down in the cradle, and Matthew's really really like a just a dumbass kid. Like <laughs> I, I had a much higher opinion of him in the early parts of the series, but he's like he's just like insanely naive. Oh my god, so naive. He's very happy to have his flower gun, and Zebu is very happy to have a, like a little hand on the, his tail <laughs> that is like it. the cutest and silliest possible kind of prosthetic is just a little like human hand on the end of his tail. They look like those sticky hands that you can get from like the little 25 cent, you know, machines. <gasps> they do! <laughs> yes! And Matthew seems to think walk. so too, with his damn Z, that prehensile tail <laughs> hand is sick. <laughs> <laughs> There's an art shift, and suddenly they are cold and putting on their, their uh, Savage Land cold uniforms. I don't know what to call them. They're, they're really cool mountainous snow. I love the I love the biotech so much. I just love how it's just like, bam, it's like instantaneous. It's so great. Yeah, I like how it's colored here, where it like shimmers and shines as it comes on to Shanna's leg. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then we get another one of those polycyons that freaked me out so much the last time with the caterpillar. Oh. Yeah. 
like talk about creepy as hell like yeah it's something about the hyphenation there that just like evokes this like strange way of talking as man is creepy yeah you know if people really looked at the animal on their plate they'd feel queasy (laughs) and if (laughs) if it looked anything like this i absolutely would i would be like you know thank you i'm not hungry (laughs) (laughs) i appreciate the food (laughs) right it it feels very much like a um uh, a bit of a commentary on how we dna splice some of our food and it just it's very yeah i'm like is this is is this commentary on on it's very gmo-y oh my gosh yeah i did not even think about that i love how like when they're fighting so much like donna and kazar are just like i love you i love you yeah they're like back to back hey i love you we're going into a fight gotta tell you i love you right so Kazar switches on his dino powers as usual, and Shana becomes the queen of vines and all things growing. I, I'm loving this new power set for both of them because it doesn't yes. feel like this is at all how they used to fight, and I think it's much. It makes them so much more elemental and primordial. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I love the way that the polyscience talk because all of them seem to have like some kind of New York dialect. <laughs> one gets, this like a giant seal gets trapped by Shana and just goes stupid human. <laughs> <laughs> Should let me eat you. <laughs> All right, so there's like this mini philosophical argument between Kazar and Shanna, which seems to be most of the time, which I think that's cool. I think a, a couple should have talks about like how they view the world. I think that's uh, pretty rad that they know each other well enough to do that in a fight. Yeah, but how Kazar is just like he's mad at the animals, so he wants to view them as dead and deader than dead, a blight, uh, something to be eradicated and destroyed. But she keeps trying to remind him, like, no, listen, they're they're living, even if they're not living. These are these are sentient beings, and we're going to be compassionate. And at one point, she literally has to say, like, let me be clear: every species in the Savage Land is worth protecting in the sense of showing it respect. You know, just mm-hmm. like you're not going to eradicate these just because they're trying to kill us. They're better than that. Humans have to be better than that. And as defense of the savage land they have to be better than that this couldn't lead to another forest explosion you know yeah it's, it's dead <laughs> it's it's past it's more than just past dead it's dead it's melded with something that wasn't from its original species and it's trying to murder you but but shana's right like it's it's got it's still got that soul and it's and it's still like she can feel it like she can feel it's not humanity but it's, it's life it's life force and you know it's not these creatures fault that they've become what they've become so you know they are new life in a strange place and in this land you have to protect it like as much as as much as you need to you know free matthew and and get it get it done you still have to protect this life to some level which is funny because they both have like a connection to nature shanna's is always more empathetic i think than kazar's but kazar's Mm -hmm. is weird (laughs) (laughs) because right after this he turns into the mothman right i was like oh oh Okay, that's a new yeah. one on me. After the polar bear bat whaps him into the wall, and I was like, "Oh no, is he dead again?" But no, Kazar dies a lot in the series, or at least he he's he just he's got like a real bloody skull. Like, does his skull is leaking <laughs> blood all the time? Like, I've right? Kazar's like whole like weird emotional problems and anger issues in this make a lot of sense already with the trauma he's been through with dying repeatedly. But I think it makes a lot of sense also that his brain has just been pulped. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <gasps> I just you know who Kazar kind of reminds me about like in the series because she also had the same issues with the 
animals that she would transform into sort of taking over her psyche but like Hila really reminds me of uh, Snowbird from Alpha Flight because oh, yeah. um because she would be able to turn into any animal from Canada that's really oddly fucking specific but like she could turn into any Canadian animal you're right he absolutely has Snowbird's like whole thing going on like in so many ways is the chosen yeah. protector of this land uh at, at least his doesn't stop at a weird arbitrary national border enforced right. by <laughs> his stops at the end of the savage land but yeah right you're like whole yeah. continent no no weird like you can only do animals north of the 49th parallel no <laughs> yes yes if the animal crosses the u.s border it is no longer in your power <laughs> <laughs> She's like, I'm sort of a moose. No. <laughs> Kazar's mothman form lifts them out of the labyrinth in Antarctica that they're in. They seem to be outside. I don't know. It's very it's it's very much a weird mystical fantasy land. We get to run into a dreadnoughtus. I love wondering. that. The art here is so different. Like I saw Matthew standing in the mouth of the dreadnoughtus and I thought this was a different person until I mean he yells father and that's what keeps me going. But yeah, I don't know. The shift is jarring from the mothman of it the is. previous page to the mothman of this page. The fact that like everybody's clothes have been changing like very rapidly throughout this is strange they are once again in their regular costumes but when they hit the ground they're already in their winter outfits i don't know uh, the art is very jarring towards the end of this one but yeah what did you think of the uh the art shift through this whole issue well the the art shift is what's making me believe that they are not in an actual physical realm Ooh. but more like they're oh. in in a, a purgatory kind of place because again you've got these dead things that honestly should not be moving around and they are and they're mixed with technology but yeah like the the quick shifts in like the clothing and sometimes the art style and just kind of the feel of everything makes me think that they might be kind of in a purgatory-esque world yeah okay so i'm glad that helps enhance the feeling of like the surreality of mm -hmm. this um, all the art is like good on its own it's just always like a different kind of good every page at this point at the very end there was an issue of excalibur like during the cross time caper where they go to the racing world and like almost every other page was was purposely like a different art style just to like show how bizarre and strange this world is i feel like this whole sequence with fighting matthew is probably my not my favorite part of the issue and it's not it's not simply because of the art rotation but because matthew is just so annoying to me as <laughs> the kind of kid who's like i thought i was the chosen one but it turns out i'm nothing and like blah 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 it's a thing i hear all the time and it's a thing you always hear from like especially like young white male protagonists yeah. is like you know i didn't get to be luke skywalker and i deserved it and I, I that's that's a real thing that people feel and that leads people to be awful yeah it does i don't i don't like seeing it from a character i'm supposed to care about yeah he's just spouting off kind of a lot a bunch of cliched stuff about how the world is held together by the dead as if they don't know that he attacks his mom and then tries to dare his dad to kill him and it's just like right Elkazar is just like what are you talking about i'm not gonna kill you you're in trouble <laughs> like you're grounded you're not dead you're gonna be grounded <laughs> you wish man. you were dead when i'm done with right. you but you're not gonna die <laughs> yeah and then this may be the most annoying line of dialogue from matthew to me is because like obviously 
this is this is the way that like a, a young teenager might feel about finding out about the injustices of the world and it's that's very real is feeling like nobody cares when you see all this injustice around you but i'm always annoyed when i see the you know people that plants die from war sickness starvation nobody cares it's like of course people care you know they just they're not yeah. doing anything <laughs> it's not like everybody can just oh yeah let me snap my fingers and make it all better and nothing flat like yeah and i mean his is. his yeah. solution is to make the whole world bow to the savage land which i mean fine i know that's not what the the protectors of the savage land want at all uh it seems to be only what Boy wants really say the worst line of dialogue to me that like matthew does and it had to like cut kevin to the core it's the you're worse than grandpa oh totally and it's so out of line like because he's not yeah. <laughs> like no i know metric is kazar worse than grandpa plunder but of course like this is how matthew feels in this moment he wants to hurt his dad he's angry mm -hmm. and upset and I, it, it's funny because like you know this is literally kazar telling him like nature is more complex than you could ever imagine things are not so reductive and he just like slaps him back in the face for that mm -hmm. <sighs> yeah so after all that we got dama boy coming back and doing his thing he does the thing that he does in almost seemingly every issue uh which is uh kill kazar <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it is kind of a body horror book, so... And yeah, he just, like, makes his head not there anymore. Yeah, and yeah. I really liked the the strange inverted reasoning Domovoy has for... Like, Domovoy's clinical and butcher shop talk to Kazar right before killing him is exactly like the dream of Lord Plunder, mm -hmm. you know? When he's just, like, he's feeling his spine, mm -hmm. yeah. talking about how it's glued to your delicate meat, and he just, like, talks about the calcium phosphate, the three tiny bones in the inner ear, shatter those, shatter the skull... Of course, he just splats him. Like, that has nothing to do with the inner ear bones. But I, yeah. I love the attention yeah. to detail. I thought that was funny, like, where he's like, yeah, I'm just going to shatter your skull like that. And he just, like, he doesn't, like, shatter the skull. He, like, fucking, like, crushes it. <laughs> like, skull. And then, like, and then, like, just to kill Shauna by just throwing her off a cliff seems like, one, like, you're asking for her to come back easily. Mm -hmm. uh, totally. I, I love how Matthew's like, my parents, you murdered them. It's like, have you ever been in a comic book before, Matthew? Right. <laughs> like welcome to your origin story you're welcome <laughs> yeah i do love that seeing his parent die jolted him out of his teenage rage hormone induced rage i don't know whatever it is but like you know maybe maybe he will come to a better understanding of the savage land and its need for balance because he saw his parents killed even though we know they're not going to die but like yeah you mentioned earlier that dama boy seems like he's grooming matthew for something and that's that's like very clear at the end here because you know he mm -hmm. emphasizes that matthew is irreplaceable whereas parents were yeah. disposable something matthew obviously desperately needs to hear and wants to hear because he thought he was the chosen one and it turns out his parents are more interesting and it's funny because if only matthew <laughs> if only matthew knew that not only is he not the chosen one and that his parents were chosen over him but it, that that doesn't mean jack shit to the indigenous people of this land they're like yeah. yeah you're the chosen one i guess but like we don't like you we don't trust you we don't think you're going to succeed we don't believe in you yeah yeah um, that, yeah so the... like, with that <laughs> would that chosen one status ever actually mean anything to matthew the way he thinks it would but okay so the villain got in like the best line of comic book foolish sack of meat metal joints can't fix you i'm like <laughs> like holy shit that's amazing i, I really like that as well i like that he's like literally like i oh man the fixing that i would have to do to you is just so much beyond giving you a prosthetic <laughs> right no i i oh god i laughed when he went go wait 
in the skull. Like, go wait in the skull was really good. Oh, wait for me, master. Wait for me inside the skull. Oh my god, that was like my, my favorite line of the entire cup. Was go wait in the skull. <laughs> that was that was a super super good line actually. Oh my god, it was so funny. Go but wait in the like, skull. I'll yeah. Turn the skull around. Yeah. Right. And okay, it was so good. So on this last page here, those don't really look like a body part to anybody right there yes like... yes no i thought that the moment i saw that i'm like are we alluding vagina, some, right some... yeah it's like mm, that's anatomy that's that yeah that I mean, has to be anatomy that's always going on with Donald boy right i mean on the preview page next there's a very either phallic or mushroom like vision of him yeah well and yeah and yeah Kazar. <laughs> on this preview actually Kazar is like wow yeah but we got a slight bit more of Damavoy's origins in this uh, in this issue, where we mm-hmm. learn that he's like some kind of bacterial nanotech that has latched on to some old memories mm-hmm. yeah. that they don't understand. Uh, I still am a little foggy on the ultimate origin, but at this point, it's the mystery of the origin of Damavoy is not nearly as important to me as like the crusade for domination that Damavoy is pursuing among the dead mm-hmm. and the dying and the rotting. The next issue preview calls itself the Savage Land Rots, so I'm sure we'll be seeing even more of this digestion of the living and composting them into something much more sinister like we saw with the cradle in this issue yeah, oh, yeah. definitely like i think the what i'm the most excited about is is obviously it's gonna maybe return donald is gonna get defeated somehow but I, i'm excited to see i've been really excited to see how this story has been very aware of the fact that yes you know the plunders are the protectors of the savage land but just because they're the protectors of the savage land doesn't mean that everybody is going to love them and respect them for it and that they don't necessarily need to be loved and respected by everybody because these other factions um and group that inhabit the savage land have real reason to be wary of the you know the the white saviors that came in and are trying to fix the land i love the idea of you know this tech creature trying to force modernization of the savage land Mm -hmm. and change it in these weird ways and i I just love how like this story is such a great cautionary tale i'd love to see it wrapped up in a way where i don't know do we think matthew is redeemable i don't know if i do like at this point because i mean matthew matthew has done harm here but Mm -hmm. like he's just he's extremely naive and he hasn't actually like done a whole lot that has been actually bad i mean i feel like i don't want to start doing utilitarian moral calculus but technically speaking i think the largest harm done in the series so far is by kazar with that forest Um, oh yeah oh yeah but like yeah i think i think matthew is still somebody who could be pulled out of the clutches of damavoy and brought to his senses and i think i think you're right that seeing his parents killed uh, would spur that air kind quotes. of revolution in him, I'd hope. To sound like Taya, air quote, killed. Yes, <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. That monstrous mechanical being <laughs> killed them. <laughs> Hey everybody, Nico here one last time. Now, we had kind of set out to talk about Phoenix Song, Echo 2 and 3, but we sort of got distracted by so much of the Phoenix lore that we all love, and then characters that have held the Phoenix Force, and then the Adversary and Forge, and it was really meant to be a discussion about these two issues, but... 
it wound up being so much about what these issues represent and how powerful the myth of the phoenix and the idea of rebranding it within another culture is. And we definitely can't wait for the last two issues of this miniseries, as well as for the future of the Phoenix Force. As always, guys, we'll be here to cover it every week in our new format, covering Magic Mondays, X-Men X Wednesdays, and Marvel Fanfare Fridays. So until next time, guys, you can check me out, Nico Action, on Twitter and Instagram, N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Don't forget to look up X's for Podcast all over where you find podcasts and social media. Keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open, enjoy this last segment, and and we'll see ya. Hey everybody, welcome to another exciting segment of Extra for Podcast where we talk about mutants, Marvel, and magic week after week. I'm Nathan, you can find me online on Twitter at DazzlerAOA. That's Dazzler, like in the Age of Apocalypse. And I'm Raven, aka Dame Red Bento. Uh, you can find me over on TikTok and Twitter and probably a couple other places. And right now I'm doing a lot of very spicy art, so come on over. And I'm TK, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. And I'm Nico, and you guys can can find me over on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And we hope you guys survive the experience. Unlike my conviction that <laughs> I, I don't even know. Like I'm like Echo deserves better. Phoenix deserves better. Forge deserves better. Eh, Forge nah, deserves better. Yeah. <laughs> For, and I guess that means we're talking about Phoenix Song Echo 2 and 3. So these issues were brought, brought, brought to us by the writer Rebecca Rowanhorse, artist Luca Marzesca, and Kyle Charles, color artists Carlos Lopez and Brian Valenza. And the letter is Friend of the Pod, BC's Ariana Mayer. Where were you guys when you read these two issues? Because I'm just like jumbled. I think jumbled is a good word for it. That's definitely one way to describe it. You know, I love the fact that a Native woman is getting to write a Native character and contribute to a huge part of the Marvel mythos. Um, and the fact of the matter is, a lot of white male writers have gotten to do whatever the hell they want with Phoenix, and I have not loved all of it. So if other writers get a chance to do it, I'm not going to love everything that everybody does. But this, I mean, the Phoenix is a pillar of Marvel continuity, and it's good to see other other people get a hold of it even if it's if they're not doing necessarily stuff that i want to see yes absolutely we don't need just white men writing stories and getting published but i'm having a lot of trouble with this and i really really wanted to not be having trouble with this because echo is one of my favorite characters that i have become very like closely tied to and intimate with in the last couple of months because i did a massive read on her um about 60 comic books worth so i i'm I'm frustrated because there's plenty of source material and this doesn't feel like Echo or Phoenix and I'm having a problem back. And like, I wish that like, cause Raven, it's so great when you go ahead and you say everything I'm thinking so that you can say it prettier and smarter. Cause <laughs> I, I'm like, it's that it's, but it's that it's, yeah, it's that it doesn't feel like Echo or Phoenix in a lot of ways. And I think, I don't know, maybe it's even where I don't know enough about both Native American lore and the origins of 
Phoenix in multiple different historical canons, right? But I just feel like there is sort of like, it's almost like somebody said, this is a Cliff's Notes of all the best Phoenix stories. Mm -hmm. Okay, here's the wiki summary of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's reasonable. You're, you're not even wrong. And like... Like even the introduction of, of the villain that we, we finally got here was just like uh, oh oh okay it uh, I'm a queen for pacing I am just such a hard ass when it comes to the pacing of a story and the like every time it seems to get on on even footing like where you could really okay we can sprint with the story it changes tack and the pacing changes all over again and it's becoming so frustrating because we're not getting um like a well fleshed out story that that you know you follow that you can really bite your teeth into and really get to know characters and you know really digest and get something from it it's like here no over here no over here and it's like no please <laughs> i think you're totally correct about that especially it sprints when it should slow down yes. and it slows yeah. down i mean like that's a that's a perfect way to describe it because there are moments here where you're like okay we should be moving through a bunch of stuff now we should not be stopping for multiple pages to like be in this nightclub um <laughs> and there are other times where it's like why how do we just get from point a to P point b that quickly did we yeah. not want to breathe here for a second i right. took an uber right? <laughs> <laughs> through time and space so we finally figure out in issue two why forge has been lumped into the story right yeah. because we've got the adversary now the intro of the adversary as the like main villain of the story just seemed a little suspect to me it just seemed like thrown in it's no like no build up it's just like hey here's the adversary like what right you do see that the adversary has been trying to um worm his way into river's mind for a long time which i'm sure we'll get an explanation of because it sort of contradicts some of the continuity that we've had so far with the adversary and it sets the adversary up as a villain who can take on even a newly formed phoenix what do we think about that as a as a you know just how do we feel about the adversary being set up as such a powerful force he's supposed to be powerful and, and i totally get that because he's he's the adversary he's the trickster he's um part of cheyenne myth and lore i very much thought that they were gonna you know pull out you know i am nuisha or you know i'm the coyote trickster guy. like i was expecting you know like a god god and we have adversary and they just kind of threw him in real quick chris claremont's work on x-men can only be described as successful art because it is all anyone will talk about 40 years later i don't think this story had room for the adversary i don't think it really even had room for forge <laughs> I, I love echo and I love the idea of Echo exploring her native roots. So I'm here for that journey. I almost feel like because it's a Phoenix story, that's the part that doesn't belong here or the other stuff doesn't belong here. But like there just isn't room for Echo and Flamey Chicken Nugget in the same title. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> also think it was a really odd choice to bring Forge in at the beginning to yep. warn her about the Phoenix with no mention of the adversary. Mm -hmm. skip a yeah. whole issue with forge bring the adversary in then have Forge show up in the middle of issue three and be like oh i now i now i too know why i'm in this book like, hey guys that, i'm forge i've been hanging out with white people for so long i thought my job was just to show up at the end and save the day clearly 
this the start would have been a really good time to bring gene in for two seconds Mm -hmm. and you know or anybody else like if it was going to be forged because the adversary is there totally fine but get those two together at very early on or at the same time regardless because really that's why forge is there forge isn't there because of anything phoenix related i don't like the implication that forge is going to have to help save the day so forge is going to have to help echo save the day over the adversary especially as he's just kind of like kind of assholed his way into the situation in the first place for no reason because why does forge care about the phoenix huh we're in a box <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm i'm with you on that what's think- in the box <laughs> <laughs> i'm like uh, of all things you you can you can detect the phoenix but you couldn't detect one of your oldest most powerful literal adversaries yep coming back into this dimension to mess with the phoenix like wtf and at no time has echo actually tried to talk with the phoenix about her power set so like suddenly you go from i can throw flames i can melt things to i can resurrect the dead what i need more exploration into the culture which means you need to get rid of one thing or the other and kind of resonating to what you said earlier nico about the chris claremont stories being the art that everybody looks back to like 40 years later like the blurb about forge and the adversary only mentions um that arc x-men uh, uncanny x-men 227 where it ended where the x-men sacrificed their life and with Roma to save the adversary and they got resurrected and it doesn't mention any of the other appearances of the adversary since adversary appeared again in x-factor and also adversary possessed forge's mind in cable and x-force volume uh, like trade number four it's about uh, issues 15 through 18 i believe something like that i just reread those and it's a wild crazy cable and x-force thing i'm like holy crap this is insane but it has nothing to do with where the adversary is now like certain bits that cycle in and out and i feel like forge is one of those characters who once he cycled out he never cycled back in right like no other generation of fandom ever bit onto forge every couple of years somebody bites onto daredevil every couple of years somebody bites on the fantastic four but forge is in some ways because he's such a precious unicorn vaguely inaccessible he's a native american hyper technological mutant cheyenne mystic war veteran with ptsd amputee who also could double as an underwear model and i think right right? i think because he is a Yu-Gi-Oh card i think sometimes people almost don't know how to interact with the level of fabulous that he is so they've made him constantly an asshole but i i think the only person who's really written that well-rounded forge except for what they did in x factor revisiting it like is chris claremont like even when in the revolution era which very controversial for some people like even then was like the last time i really remember his mysticism being brought up because he was trying to teach danny moonstar how to be a mystic as well while she went to college was a part-time x-man i think the thing about the claremont era is claremont created and introduced a lot of characters and 
wrote them where, you know, Chris Claremont is a old white man, but we forgive him for that because he gave us so many great characters who weren't white and we're totally happy with that. But as time has gone on, we have expected that other people would get access to those characters who have experiences even remotely similar to theirs. And usually that doesn't happen at all. And when it does, those people shy away from dealing with the bits that don't have to do with them personally. And for Forge, that's most of the stuff that is interesting so he winds up being the q the gadgeteer with a like vaguely problematic romantic past with storm but everything else about him that's really cool and that you really want to dig into nobody wants to touch yeah no no. i do want to dig in i do want to touch face forward i hear you i'm like touch it so hard i would love to see the mix of of shamanic and technology that you could pull with forge oh I Absolutely, think it would be yeah. an amazing storyline to like see him come to grips with being hyper technological as his power, but also the fact he was picked to be a shaman, that he rejected that role. You know, what does that mean for him as a person? How does that affect him as he develops not only his powers, but his relationships to the world around him? I mean, there's so much that could be had from Forge and we're not getting it. He's just, he's like, oh God, I hate to even say this. He's like if Tony Stark was just a background character yeah yeah, yeah. no like madison jeffries yeah, yeah a yeah. thousand percent but i think they use madison jeffries more true to his character background <laughs> yeah. 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 it's hard to misuse jeffries he's kind of two notes it's pretty right there had a really interesting moment during necrotia i'm thinking about the number of men of science and magic and faith that have all been directly connected to Storm. And it's like everyone, you know, whether or not they hate fuck, there's definitely some tension on whatever level between Storm and Doom. It's not like she wants it, but she recognizes that he's gonna wear that mask no matter what. And <laughs> she knows how to she knows how to uh court him just enough yes. that it throws him off balance, which nice is exactly package. what she wants. And Forge and Black Panther and even minor characters like Archon and, Mm -hmm. you know, so many of the Savage Land characters. And like, is there something, because Storm is not a technological woman. Like that is not her thing. So is there something to you as a woman of color that you feel really resonates with how many fantastically mystical, uh, faith-based and uh, technological men Storm has intersected with on that stage? Well, that's the thing that I love about Storm. She doesn't, she's not like a science denier. She's not a faith only kind of character or a magic only or a power only or a science. She walks through the world with the confidence of a goddess, very much so. She is attractive because she is powerful, because she is confident, because she is unapologetically who she is. And it is, she's, she's smart. Like when it comes to the mystical, she will admit when she is not like, oh yeah, no, no, I've totally dealt with all this kind of mystical stuff. She'll go, okay look I know some stuff about the mystical but I'm going to defer to people who are more versed and we will come up with a game plan from there so she she never acts like she knows everything which is really off-putting by about a lot of the men is that oh no I know the everything it's like no no you really don't and it, it shows that you don't she has this beautiful grace of, of humbleness but also this amazing amount of confidence she is like watching uh, uh, an ice skater dance 
through the verse that are all these people who, you know, some some of them think so much more of themselves and she she gently humbles them. And that is like probably the one of the best things. So the kind of relationship people want with Storm can vary from this is a woman I want to knock down a few pegs because god damn it, she's just so perfect to wow, she's an amazing mentor and you can't help but feel deep emotion for her and I want to get to know her better. And like, honestly, this is what I'm looking for in a lot of other female characters. And sometimes I get some of it and sometimes I don't get a lot of it. But yeah, I just, I want characters who are confident in themselves, who, uh, who have that diplomacy, who know how to navigate, you know, this, this delicate dance that is interpersonal relationships on all the different levels. And, and, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's Storm's age because she is not, you know, some teeny boppy teenager type thing. She is a woman, I'm going to guess at this point in her mid thirties to forties ish. And like, yeah, she has that confidence because she has lived that life. She has that grace and poise because that has been needed of her. But she also, yeah, gets all of the good roles, as it were. And I'm desperate to see this kind of command in other women, especially other women of color. Because I love Phoenix because she is an unparalleled power. I love Echo because she is calculated and she has to play a lot of different roles and she has very different ways of interacting with the world because she is deaf. And I'm just, I'm not, I'm not getting to see all that loveliness. I'm just seeing this hot-tempered woman who does zero thinking. And I'm just like, she literally watched nonstop footage of Daredevil on the news, uh, you know, rented every single action movie she could get, studied every file she could get her hands on for like weeks before she even attempted to take Daredevil. And here she is, she's just running headlong at adversary who she literally knows jack shit nothing about right there and like yeah. not to but like think about the like and not like that no one else will get it but raven you're gonna get it better than me but think about like every single parry every single movement mm-hmm. every single fucking movement in the rooftop sequence in the chase issue that stretched out over three mm-hmm. issues <laughs> think about how much she's learned since the playground fight and mm-hmm. how she purposely always moves with thought where yes. is that yeah and yeah we're not getting you know, that she really right now strikes me like some of my problems with how Betsy Braddock has been presented, especially post body switch back to her original body. You know, it's just the character, all like the character that they were before has been wiped away by this immense power, immense life event, whatever, where it just totally has reset the character. And yes, they're still struggling to work with the power, but they're not, they're not holding on to what they were before talking about phoenixes though we did get introduced to another phoenix host from the past Mm -hmm. in living in the cahokia uh 1050 ce and her name is oyo lock i probably said that wrong but what did we think about this phoenix that we were introduced to oh my god yeah I loved her. Oh my god. She is amazing. She is oh, not only just in control, in command. She's she's like Storm. I like mm-hmm. her. <laughs> I want her and Kushala to have a um, <laughs> Thelma and Louise-esque buddy comedy time travel where they just go through history and kick a lot of white men in the teeth. Ooh, 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 ooh. <laughs> Can they have a Shake as, the, as a sidekick too? Uh, oh yes, please. It's just getting better. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I oh, she's, she's fabulous. I love her. And I love how she, oh my Oh my god she reads echo for 
filth. She's like, you're you're a phoenix, but you're so weak. I'm like, oh, Jesus, fuck me. She just got there, damn. <laughs> but no. I've been having a lot of trouble with everything with the phoenix in the Aaron run and through this because I feel like a lot of the characterization of the phoenix is incorrect. But mm-hmm. there's this line in this that I was like, we're getting to something with that. And she says, why are you fighting who you are? No wonder it only manifests as rage to you. If you mm-hmm. accept it, the phoenix can reveal the wonders of the universe. And that's, if there's a core that we have to get to in all of this other people are the phoenix stuff, it is exactly that. The phoenix is not a space parasite. Mm-hmm. It is a cosmic force and there's got to be more to it. So I love No, no, no. The... It eats unborn babies. No, 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 no. <laughs> hey, no, hey, no, no, the no, no, phoenix no. is afraid of the wrath of Khan, okay? <laughs> I'm also afraid of Christopher Lloyd. <laughs> oh, wait, no, Khan. You said Khan. Never mind. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. Wrong original series film. Gotta go. Rich Corinthian leather. But, but that is the Phoenix Force's ancient arch enemy, the Wrath of Khan. <laughs> At least it's not Shaka Khan, because then I don't know who I <laughs> dance, dance off. But, oh my god, I would. ain't nobody gonna burn me better. I would totally root for Shaka Khan. <laughs> But that that sort of side note with the Wrath of Khan being the ancient enemy is, do you all think that the Phoenix Force is was better as the mystery that we were introduced to the Phoenix Force as, or with all of the history upon revisioned history upon revisioned history that we are currently having with the Phoenix Force? Up until the Morrison run, I wanted to know more, and Morrison's sort of deep understanding of the occult and mysticism added some flavor to this idea of, you know, it was still an unknowable cosmic entity. Like there was a degree to which even when he would add things in like the white hot room, he was never going to give you a lot of details. He was putting name to concepts that were beyond human understanding and that were, you know, very psychedelic because that's all Morrison does. But the idea is not to expand that mythos in a way where it can get granular. So I loved what he did in that way, but the problem is other people then took that and were like oh the white hot room that's like another dimension we can get there it looks like this and that took things to a level i did not like with the phoenix being maybe permanently separated from gene gray or the gene gray or the gray family line like do does a lot of those past stories make sense does it make sense for i mean we know echo still trying to figure out why the phoenix shows her as a host herself but have we found any Thing that made makes sense as to why the phoenix would have chose the phoenix battle uh you know the fight for the force who's going to be the the host um you know and does this new layer of mythos with these new hosts and everything that's been going on in the air and run does that add more to the phoenix force okay i think that if gene gray is supposedly you know so if we go by the morrison definition because morrison sort of said you know we don't need a lot of the previous canon we're going to keep white hot room from classic x-men 8 but we're going to toss out um All phoenix the... eats babies from excalibur 50 you know we, we're gonna All we're gonna air on crap yeah we're gonna get rid of the you know ancient skinny pale monk boy and you know we're gonna move forward i think if we're gonna say that gene is like this focal point she's the white hot phoenix of the crowd let's just say gene being here deforms reality that's responsibility right so gene being here makes the phoenix here kind of like 
right? So what if we're getting a whole lot of phoenixes? That's why. What if that's why everything's all jacked up? Because oh. what if the wrong phoenix keeps coming through and my precious miracle man is here, so nothing matters, you're all gonna die, and... Um, <laughs> But so what if we're getting all of these jacked up phoenixes, just like, you know, there's like a phoenix for every celestial now, and maybe the celestials will get the phoenix force, <laughs> and maybe that's what this big event is over the summer. We're going to have Arisham Phoenix, and we're going to have the Dreaming Phoenix, because I can't remember any of the other ones. Oh, Tiamat. We're going to have uh, the Tiamat Phoenix now in that of celestials. <laughs> so... <laughs> yeah. So like, oh, nowhere's going to become a phoenix. Oh my god. Yeah. 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 An anti phoenix. A yeah. necron. The anti phoenix. <laughs> so I. I just need to be clear. I personally love the Aaron Thor Phoenix stuff. That's fascinating to me. And I actually love Phoenix 1 billion BC. She's hot. And oh, like, fuck yeah. fuck yeah, man. Give me a good badass bitch who knows how to wear a pelt. Yeah. So I'm a big fan because she's basically Conan with TK. This does not feel like it's part of a cohesive plan to go in. This is a lot of fun and I like it. And I like it because I like Aaron. Aaron writes in the key of me. You know what I mean? fine <laughs> that's my answer it's fine <laughs> like the whole phoenix force we're gonna pit the avengers slash namor slash we're just gonna take a bunch of random people and and put them up against each other in a in a battle for the phoenix force should have never happened the phoenix be, slammed I'm, her I'm, action figures together I, uh, <laughs> yeah that's oh my god that's oh my god that's exactly what i don't necessarily need another rage story with phoenix i want to find a deeper mythos and it just feels like uh, i don't know it's like hey we're gonna give you a phoenix story okay but i thought we were having an echo story but yeah it's sort of an echo well you know echo is there and i'm just like <sighs> but that's why i love this past phoenix that we're introduced to so much because she's yes. got such an amazing balance and she knows the full potential of the phoenix and she knows its pros and cons it's, it's good and it's bad and she seems like one of the better hosts. So my question for all of you is, who is your ultimate Phoenix host that we've seen uh, so far? Ready to go. Ready to go. Let's do this. <laughs> uh, okay. All right. Ye <laughs> purple Quentin. Let's do this. So he appears on two panels. He is my everything. He is in new X-Men 154. He is my sun and my moon. I love him so much. It's Quentin. <laughs> I love you, even though you're so wrong. <laughs> it's perfect. I mean, Jean Grey is my favorite. Jean is my Jean. She's my Jean. But yeah, I'm like, if I have to pick a like a, a who else, I'm I'm going Quentin because okay, he's so bad at it. And like, <laughs> I have this whole theory that one of the reasons the Phoenix hasn't been here comes tomorrow levels Phoenix since Morrison left is because the Phoenix is broken in reality right now, which okay. is why it keeps attaching to broken people like mm. Quentin. Quentin is the poster boy for oh god, this is gonna pay back this is gonna bite me in the ass later isn't it like quentin is that guy you know so quentin <laughs> i love him all right. so much <laughs> all right let me throw like my name in the ring disasters. because it is i think hands down the best host of the phoenix is not jean graham but her daughter rachel yep. summers that was mine oh, too nice. yeah, because i mean like who else has lived in harmony with the phoenix force the full potential of the phoenix force at their disposal but rachel she never really went dark phoenix that was never really in her wheelhouse that they presented like yeah the phoenix presented some problems with her memories and it shattered her psyche 
But besides that, like she didn't have like she had Rachel has rage issues, but they weren't related to the Phoenix. They were her own personal ones. And she never seemed on the verge of going dark. And that outfit, the hound outfit. Holy fuck. (laughs) She's also possibly the child of the Phoenix. So there's a whole sort of I mean, like I also say mine is like Jean is for storytelling purposes and like for the long term, like we always return to Jean as the Phoenix. So that's always going to be a thing. But the idea that Rachel is like end game for the Phoenix, like all the Phoenix wanted was to find a host for which it could generate parthenogenically and have an offspring that it could have some kind of productive relationship with. Like to me, that that's the whole thing. Like that's the whole bag right there. None of nothing else matters. Yeah. I'm, Rachel, 100%. And that's why she's alone in the multiverse, right? Because she's yeah. the one who's the daughter of the actual Phoenix. Right. There's been other Rachel Summers out there that have maybe looked the same, but I think they've been but they're daughters stupid of Jean Scott Grey. Summers kids. <laughs> I have this whole theory that Rachel is actually uh, the fusion child of both Scott and Logan and Jean through the Phoenix, which is why she's a tracker hound and she's also got Summers DNA, I guess. Mm. And, you know, she just <laughs> is most writers stand in for Jean. So, <laughs> you know what? There is actually some story precedence for that because in the Days of Future Tense, is that what it was? Yeah. When Sue could find Franklin, but Scott couldn't find Rachel because you know, why? Because he wasn't really her dad. Why? Because she didn't really like you. <laughs> <laughs> You're not my dad. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I definitely have to agree to a certain level that, yes, Rachel Summers is probably the best embodiment of the Phoenix. Uh, she spent literally the most time with the Phoenix, uh, became the most in tune with the Phoenix's power. She had rage issues, but they were quite literally her own rage issues, and she didn't try and siphon them through the Phoenix and, and or vice versa. The you know, Phoenix had never pushed to take over that particular aspect. Um, it just happened to be there it wasn't the end-all be-all. But the other person, I think, that held Phoenix Force really well, and the reason I love her as the Phoenix so much is because she could walk away from it, was Storm. She held that, she's held, actually, she's held multiple god-level embodiments, and she's willingly walked away from them. I mean, because she's so fabulous. She doesn't already (laughs) have Well, and to her, power, just for the sake of power, is not her pursuit. She wants balance. She wants, uh, you know, a, a system that works correctly for all involved. And so, yeah, the the power of Phoenix was great, but it wasn't something she needed in order to fully realize herself. And she was okay walking away with it and not potentially, you know, losing her shit while Phoenix and then, you know, burning the cosmos to a cinder. I would say that, but I did read What If 79, where What If the Storm had the power of the Phoenix, and that reality did not turn out well. Well, yeah. That's that's, Effort, but, yeah, see, but like, that's not Aurora. That's other Aurora. That's other Aurora. She's unrelated. She's other Aurora Monrothero. And so- <laughs> I mean, she had the world's heroes floating in a frozen hurricane around her spaceship if i remember right so what do we think about the cover that we see for issue four though at the end of issue three seems to indicate a romantic relationship burgeoning between uh, echo and river what do we think about that (laughs) 
Uh, for one thing, I don't know if there's any romance involved. I'm saying. I mean, just, it could just be carnal. sex. Yeah. I don't even think it's that. I think it's futures that could be, mm. not necessarily things that actually are. Mm. Um, I'm just so oppressed by visible heterosexuality. <laughs> <laughs> I want the two phoenixes to fall in love and be a couple. Uh, but honey, I think they might be related. Ben uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. shit over Hold here. I'm very <laughs> distant. Just saying. Just saying. Then I retract my answer. <laughs> <laughs> we started this whole thing with we want everybody to get a chance to tell their story. And if this is getting the chance to tell that Fenris story for a whole new culture. Hey, you know what? In my defense, I did grow up on Claremont stories and I thought Kurt and Amanda Sefton was an amazing couple. So, <laughs> you know, cool. it wasn't too different over in Avengers where you were just like, oh, isn't it sweet how Wanda and Pete? Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> why they wait why do they have the same last name <laughs> but no like i i i think it's more of possible futures versus you know something that is actually going to happen so it should be interesting to see how this lays out it also looks like it's probably going to be from echo's perspective because she's the one that paints and you can see ballet shoes tied onto the little parts holds the paintbrush and everything i just realized adversary one of his uh one of his abilities is to mimic um or to create perfect replication yeah the trickster thing we were bringing Mm -hmm. up before so that might not that might not be echo Hmm. oh is this a four issue or a five issue i think this is five please don't be just four issue (laughs) i mean we're we're rushing as it is Uh, i think four issues would just it would be so short that there would be no way to do it yeah that that would be a hell of a wrap-up issue (laughs) yeah What's been your favorite moment so far from this mini series? Mine personally has to be meeting this ancient ancestor of Echo, who I totally don't ship her with because that's weird now. <laughs> um, but just seeing somebody who is not a redheaded white woman have such control and mastery over the Phoenix is amazing to see. And I do want to see more of that happen. And I would love that for Echo herself to get more control and mastery over the Phoenix. Absolutely. I'm, I'm so. So there with you on all of that. For me, it was definitely seeing a native person be like, so why you think firebirds belong to the Anglos? Hmm. Like that for me was it. Like I loved that sass of it. Like what? What do you mean you don't understand that like there's an entire native culture involved in Phoenix work? Like, I mean, we're seeing native Americans involved in the lore of the ghost rider, which also magically overlaps with Scott. Uh, said squadron supreme sorcerer i gotta go (laughs) which we see overlap with sorcerer supreme because like Mm -hmm. just to point out one more time kushala is equal parts sorcerer supreme and ghost rider Mm -hmm. that's too cool okay so i just really loved getting a chance to hear yeah you know we were here first and we do it better like i just loved that get it get every page of it for me i think it was that moment that i quoted where she points out that if all you do is approach the phoenix with rage you're never gonna see what it has to offer i think we all agree we do love the ancient phoenix yes yep 